It's Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. year, the Missouri Arts Council has highlighted four artists from around the state on its website each month. There have been musicians, dancers, photographers, poets, painters and storytellers. And so once a month, we take an arts tour around Missouri to chat with those featured artists. This month, we have a painter of stories, a poet, a magic realism painter and an artist who is adept at multiple media. We're going to be visiting Carthage, Buckland, Kansas City and St. Louis. So if you're sitting comfortably, there's no time to waste. Let's head out. A single painting should not define an artist. But in our contemporary 24-hour news cycle and the age of viral media, a single painting did define my next guest for a short while back in 2018, putting him in the full glare of the media before, like squirrels, Their attention was diverted by the next big thing. And Andy Thomas got to go back to doing what he has done for 30 years, paintworks that tell stories. Stories of civil war battles, of bandit ambushes and saloon brawls, of poker games and dancehall girls, as well as of political history. His works are full of action and movement as if they are stills from a movie. And if you press the play button, the figures in the painting will start to move. So although I cannot not ask about that painting, that's not where I want to start, as the works of Andy Thomas are not only in many private and corporate collections around the country, but also in museums, on book covers, in magazines, and in his own book, The Artful Journey, the artwork of Andy Thomas. Hello, Andy, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Well, hello, Diane, and thank you for having me. Your works draw comparisons with people like American Old West painters Charles Russell and Frederick Remington, and you cite Norman Rockwell and Howard Pyle as artists who have influenced you. And I'm curious, after 30 years of developing your own artistic voice, whether being compared to other artists is flattering or annoying? Well, to those people, it's uh, flattering. Actually, it's (laughs) flattering any time I mention it at all, so I take it. (laughs) Well, you have a fascinating story in not only being largely self-taught as an artist, but after 16 years of working in marketing and advertising, you decided that life was too short not to do what you love. And you left the corporate world behind to leap into the uncertainty of making a living as an independent artist at a time when you had six children living at home. And that is a story after my own heart as I made a similar move at around the same age. So what persuaded you to do it? Well, I I just had that itch, and I had the best job in my hometown, I felt like, but I just couldn't see doing it for 30 more years and being happy, and I was still fairly young in my 30s, or lower 30s, and my wife and I, my wife was very supportive from, you know, at any suggestion of that, she was uh, behind it 100%, and we talked it through and just said, well, I had some money saved through the stock option thing through the company. We could live, if I didn't sell a painting, we could live just fine for two years. And then I'd be 35 years old and have to find a job. And that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. (laughs) 
Had you studied art at school? No, I, I went to night school. I actually started work at the corporation when I was 17 and realized that I could have an opportunity with the company. It's Leggett and Play. It's a great company. Love them. So I went to night school and got a degree in marketing management, but I did manage to take probably about 12 hours of art at night, which it's a little hard to get night classes in art, but I did. So how, how did that all work financially back in those early days when you were still largely a novice at your art? How did you find sales? My wife. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a good artist is unusual. A good person to sell art is even more unusual. And my wife is an excellent salesperson. We sold a lot locally, so my hometown supported me. But the bulk of our uh, real money came from traveling shows. We would load up the van with paintings and a pop-up tent and drive either local, sometimes clear across the country to attend a show. Anywhere where there was fifty to 100,000 people attending a fair or a market. And, you know, if you have 50,000 people walk past your booth... You're going to sell something, or you should probably not be in the business. So, <laughs> that's what we did. It was a lot of fun, actually. We we would like pick. Uh, oh, we went to Beverly Hills. We went to Charlevoix, Michigan. My wife's from Connecticut, so we went to Westport, Connecticut, Florida, El Paso. We kind of made picked at least a couple of shows a year that we just wanted a place we wanted to visit. So it was it was a lot of fun. It was it was a young person's game, though. At about mm. 40, it was just uh, too grueling for us. I think there's a moment for a lot of artists when mentally they cross a line and they go from saying, I paint to I am a painter. What was that moment for you? Well, you know, I still try to describe myself as a painter and not an artist because that term means so much. But I think at some point. I the the first year that I was painting full time, I saw a vast improvement in my painting, and I was trying to learn to make up figures because I really couldn't afford the photograph models, mm. and it was hard to get them. It was back in the days of film; it was slow, and you know, you wasted a lot of film. So I was making figures up. And after about two years of full time painting, I realized, wow, I could do some things that a lot of people couldn't. And I, I got some confidence at that point. So that's when I started to feel, uh, went from being just an amateur trying to do a pretty painting that I could sell to being confident in my abilities. Well, your works are incredibly detailed. Multiple people caught mid-action, horses rearing, battles full of bodies and gunfire, famous figures seated around tables and campfires. And, and your passion for storytelling really comes through in your work. But a story has so many moments. So tell me how you decide where to put the point of view and how you decide what story to tell. Well, those are good questions, of course. The good stories just come up on you, really. You know, I read a lot. I read a lot of uh, journals and stuff from the Old West. Uh, but otherwise, I have things that interest me. It's just, it's kind of, if I'm interested, there's surely somebody else interested in the same thing. But putting together the whole package, I think it's like choreography that, you know, you kind of have a basic layout, but then every figure has to interact with the, the next one. And that's why I had so much trouble with photography, because 
you know, I really don't know what the figure is exactly going to be doing until I start painting it. You know, it's all made up. I have to decide, mm-hmm. well, what color shirt? You know, so I have 14 shirts in the painting. So I have to decide 14 different colors of shirts. You know, it's kind of exhausting in a way. <laughs> 14 different faces, 14 different types of shoes, you know, this and on and on. But, you know, it just kind of evolves. I, it's not much of a master plan and sometimes they change as I start painting them which is it should be kept that way if I knew exactly what I was going to paint it would be a very boring process anyway so back in 2008 you did a pair of paintings that featured former American presidents sitting around a table playing poker one was a game with eight Republican presidents called the Grand Ole Gang including Reagan, Nixon, Lincoln and the other called True Blues with eight Democrats including Kennedy, Clinton, Truman and in both works they appear to be at a convention and I and I love your comment on the works that some of the greatest times anyone can enjoy are when we can let our guard down because we are among the those who have been where we have been, people who know the truth and don't make harsh judgments, which is just so true. Right. How did those first paintings come about? Well, I have to admit that they weren't my idea. <laughs> and I, you know, part of being creative is being open to other people's ideas. I was working with a print company and the president of that company, a real fine fellow, he had suggested, they had suggested a lot of things most of which I rejected. But then I remember Dina coming around the corner and she described it and I said, I love it. I'll do it. I loved it because it's such a challenge. You know, I'd worked for years just to be able to paint a portrait. Painting people's faces is a real challenge. You know, you start off and you're lucky if it looks more human than ape, you know, because your proportions are off. And then you're lucky if you get a likeness. Mm. And then you get really good if you can get a likeness and it can appear spontaneous or as if the person could speak to you. So that's that's a challenge on a portrait, but I have eight to do. And so that was in the early days. The internet wasn't quite as developed, uh, images and stuff. And so I struggled to find pictures on the internet that I could modify the lighting or sometimes even flop them if they have a symmetrical face. Or maybe take one that is a flash picture, use it for the features, and then use the lighting off of another photograph. And so I had a lot of, it was a big challenge. And I had, that. that's really when painting is very interesting, when you're not sure you can do it. And uh, so that, that's how that came about. It wasn't even my idea. But. <laughs> it was a great idea. Who was the hardest of all the presidents to paint? Oh, well... I'll tell you, the recent painting with Donald Trump was hard. He's a hard man to paint because of the, you know, most people have some features that involve, you know, some dark eyes, dark eyebrows, deep shadows. He didn't have that. And that was a a challenge. Hmm. Was anybody's smile hard to capture? Because they're not always smiling presidents in official photographs. Yeah, that ties into another element of it. Finding smiling pictures of Richard Nixon was not easy. (laughs) You know, there are people who naturally smile, like Eisenhower. He smiled all the time. He's very comfortable in his skin. Gerald Ford smiled all the time. Very comfortable man. Richard Nixon was always guarded. You know, he had that unfortunate paranoia. And so he was always a little guarded. But in my original color sketch, I had Nixon 
frowning and protecting his cards, you know, holding his cards close to his chest and, and frankly, in a paranoid gesture, like people are trying to see his cards. And I laughed at it when I put it in there. So that's perfect. And then I, as I got closer to painting, I said, no, that's, that's kind of being mean. You know, he kind of had clinical paranoia. You know, and I don't want to make fun of that. And I'm gonna, I said, someday I'm going to meet members of his family, and I don't want them feeling bad. And at that moment, I decided all the presidents I paint are going to be as good-looking as I can get them. They're going to be happy. They're going to be comfortable. It's going to be a feel-good painting. And I've, I'm, I'm glad I made that decision. I have since met several members of Nixon's family and his niece last year, and she just went on and on. She was, thanked me. You know, because he's so often ridiculed, but she was so thankful that it was respectful, I guess. So then we flash forward to 2018 and there was an episode of 60 Minutes shot at the White House, which showed an updated version of your Republican president's painting, now including President Trump and called the Republican Club. And suddenly all the world descended upon you. How did that feel? Everybody should get to do that once in their life. (laughs) It was just a lot of fun, even though it was a very, you know, it went on for about a week and a half. I was doing interviews in the truck as we drove. I was pulling off on the highway to get connections. It was a lot of fun. I'm not sure I represented my part of the country well because my accent comes through no matter how hard I try to disguise it. (laughs) It was strange, though, because after 60 minutes, my phone started ringing and I told Dean, I said, boy, the telemarketers are out in force now. I wonder what it is about Sunday night. And finally, I answered one, and it was a reporter, and I did an interview on the spot, and I had two more calls that night, and then just got a barrage in the morning. And President Trump called you too, right? He did. He did. What happened was we, I had done a portrait of Daryl Issa. And he's a Californian Republican representative. Yes. And so we had you know, we had a great visit, went to Washington and twice, and uh, he gave me a tour of the Capitol. So we kind of, he feels like a friend. Of course, he probably, that's, he's a politician, but um, he told Dina that he was going to present one of the paintings to President Trump and that I needed to be by the phone. So all Dina told me was, you know, you need to be at the house at four o'clock or five o'clock, whatever <laughs> it was. I was mowing the field and I realized, well, it's getting close to four o'clock and, and I turned the mower off, came in the house. I got having grass clippings all over me. And she said, well, he, Daryl's going to be giving that to the president at five o'clock. You know, he might call. And I said, yeah, right. He's not going to call. But he did call and he's very gracious. You know, it's very unusual though to get a call. The White House says, I'm putting you through the president. He said, I'm in the Oval Office with Vice President Pence and Daryl Issa, who I understand you know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> But he was he was quite gracious. Yeah, different, you know. It's, uh, it's his human voice, his friendly voice. Right. It seems like that that moment or that time period must have been financially like watching a slot machine empty out a decade's worth of mint because you had prints available. I mean, so suddenly this was the most famous painting in the world for you know half a minute, and there was a a matching one. There was one of the Democrats with Obama in it too, the Democratic Club. So yes. did your website crash? Could you keep up with the amount of prints that everybody was asking for? Yeah. Well, what happened? We the I had left that when this all started. We were driving to St. Louis to attend a funeral. And so these calls were going on, you know, during that. But we finally got back on two days later, and my son-in-law came in. He said, 
did you show Andy the numbers? And <laughs> I said, what? I, I really didn't think about that. But yes, they, they had overwhelming. Well, my son-in-law helped. My stepson helped. They organized and everything. And they got all the orders out. And I think in all the thousands of orders, they had one that they missed, did, did wrong. So we were lucky that we weren't completely overwhelmed. I want to end with a work that is similarly a group of men sitting around a campfire. It's called American Storytellers. The 11 men include Mark Twain, Norman Rockwell, Teddy Roosevelt, Ben Franklin, Ernest Hemingway, Buffalo Bill, and others sitting around a campfire sharing stories and camaraderie. And included in that 11 is you. What do you hope your legacy will be as a painter? You know, I, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I have a lot of historical paintings that will be around for a long time because I have painted some scenes that will never be, not likely to be painted, uh, you know. But that campfire painting is one of my favorites because I, I had the idea for it. And in these scenes, you know, you you don't you have to have somebody with their back to the viewer or it looks mm. like a stage setting. And so I had a figure roughed in there, but I I'd painted... Uh, Mark Twain, who's a love Mark Twain, and Will Rogers, and I had the campfire there, and I thought, dang, I'd like to be there. <laughs> I'd like to be around a camp- any campfire, but especially when some good storyteller is talking, and I just thought, oh, I really would like to do that, and I thought, I think I'll be there, so I paid it myself in. <laughs> I love it. Well, you can see the many works of Andy Thomas on his website at andythomas.com and his series of paintings commemorating the Civil War Battle of Pea Ridge are on permanent display at the Pea Ridge National Military Park in Pea Ridge, Arkansas. Andy Thomas, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you, Diana. Thank you very much. A woman in cream trousers and a matching silk blouse perches on the edge of an ornate, high-backed rattan and velvet cushion chair amidst a field of tall grass. Her blonde hair is cut into a neat bob, but her chest is empty, the cavity surrounded by a nest of twigs as she gazes calmly off into the distance with autumn leaves fluttering in the wind and a blue-black bird sitting on her wrist. In another scene, a girl in a green dress stands in profile, her eyes closed, a halo braid in her chestnut hair, a snake coiled around her neck as a quintet of dismembered hands frame the girl's head with a pentagon of single-stalk betony flowers. Not scenes from a David Lynch film, but works by Missouri painter Brie Dewey, whose oil paintings reference components of surrealism and magic realism and reimagine a symbiotic relationship between people and their natural environment. And she is my guest this evening. Welcome to the show, Brie. Thanks, Diana. I'm happy to be here. The two works I described in the intro are called Color of Love and Bethany. Tell us about what those works symbolize. Color of Love features the empty chest cavity that you spoke about, um, and on the woman's hand is a bowerbird. So male bowerbirds will create a nest to entice a mate, and they usually will decorate them, and the female will choose a bowerbird according to how the, the nest has been decorated. So it's about love, the color of love. So oftentimes bowerbirds will lean towards the color blue, but the woman is peering out looking at red leaves, so she's looking at a different color. She's also in a white pantsuit, so it's supposed to represent the expectation of females to get married and choose a mate and how the color of love may look differently to some women. And Bethany? 
Bethany explores the magical idea or folklore behind um, it was thought that if you created a circle of Bethany and you placed two snakes inside of it, they would attack each other. So it's about external forces trying to create conflict in someone's life. But you can see the snake is coiled around her neck as if to protect the female in the figure. They are both such compelling works. I stared at them for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) So you grew up in north central Missouri and you now live in the tiny town of Buckland, not far from Marceline. And in your artist statement, you talk about your passion for nature. But for a few years, you lived and studied in Chicago. And I wonder how that affected your art of those years being so disconnected from the nature and landscape of home and being in the big city so i grew up in marceline a very small town and i always wanted to leave (laughs) Um, (laughs) as an artist in small towns usually does so i went to study art in chicago and there i just remember being so depressed because I was surrounded by buildings and I couldn't get outside. I missed water. I missed being able to go to a park or walk outside without people being everywhere. Like there was just no escape from the hustle and bustle of the city. So I I became really homesick. So um, after I graduated, my now husband and I moved into a camper and we, I wasn't sure that I wanted to come home yet, but um, we moved, lived in the camper and moved to multiple states doing work camping. So we did work trade for camping spots for our RV. And, um, then I kept on missing Missouri. I missed the seasons. We were in Arizona for a while and I missed the changing of the seasons and different weather and the native plants and, um, again, water, (laughs) the ability to swim. So we, we came back to Missouri and we bought 12 acres and we do homesteading now and we're working on building a a tiny home here on the the property that we purchased. Did you pass through any other environments on your travels which really pulled at your artistic heart? Yeah, so I mean, I was really moved by the flora in Arizona. We were in uh, Bisbee and the Sierra Vista area, so we were about five minutes from the the Mexico border. So there's a mountain there near Tucson, Mount St. Lemon, and you can drive up the mountain and you see through the elevation change, you see different flora and fauna on the way up. So you'll see saguaros at the base. And then when you get up, there's forests of aspens. So I think being able to see the different flora and fauna kind of really not only inspired me, but also made me miss the flora and fauna of home more (laughs) Mm -hmm. because it just all seems so foreign. And in Arizona specifically, everything is so vast and I missed being surrounded and encased by trees here. I mean, you can't see for a hundred miles uh, there. If you're you're out in the middle of the desert, you can see everything. Um, so I felt very exposed. So I was eager to get back to wooded areas. I think that's very interesting that people that grow up in the mountains can't stand the claustrophobia of being amidst trees, and those people that live amongst trees feel very exposed yes. when they're on a mountain. <laughs> I heard that all the time when I was in Arizona. I kept on asking for recommendations on places to hike, and that's actually why we went to uh, Mount St. Lemon. They were like, go to the Aspen Forest and you'll feel more like home, which I did. One of the other themes that you repeat in your work is the feminine, symbolized through the female figure or female hands. And always, to my reading at least, when I look at those female figures, they emanate a kind of wistful mixture of strength and sorrow. How do your paintings make you feel? They make me feel hopeful, um, but also sad because, you know, I'm saddened by the state of the climate, by just environmental despair, pretty much Mm. (laughs) the state of things currently. And I do think that it would take 
I mean, I think women are strong, but they're also nurturing. And I think that that's what it's going to take to try to heal what we've done to our planet. So it's both sad. I mean, I, I want my female figures and the, the symbolized female in my pieces to represent empathy and healing, but also strength, because we definitely need that to move forward. Right. I think my favorite of your works is called Magnolia. You have a four-armed female body in a gray dress with golden bees on the lapels. And she's snipping with one of her arms at a bunch of magnolia flowers, which rise like a head out of her dress as bees fly around her head of magnolias. Tell me about that work. That one I painted shortly after moving home and coming back from being in Chicago and on the road, um, I struggled a little bit to to readjust. <laughs> and it was kind of an exploration of trimming yourself to fit into certain positions, like being home. You know, I was I was I had to care for my my mom as she was ill. So it was like fitting into being a, a daughter and a wife and um, a homesteader and all of these an artist, <laughs> all of these different labels. So it's about trying to cut away parts of yourself in order to fit a mold but then realizing that obviously those parts of yourself are, are beneficial. So that's why I included the, the bees because the, the flowers are what the nectar from the flowers are what feed the bees, the pollen. And so, yeah, it's, it's coming to grips with not needing to do that so much. I know it's hard to choose a favorite of your own works because they're all your babies, but do you have a favorite work of yours? Yeah. So the, my favorite piece is my largest piece sky burial it's a self-portrait of me sitting with an owl that is dead and there's vultures behind me on a bridge it's a bridge near my house and it's probably the piece I'm most proud of I think it was the largest so I spent the most time with it which may be why it's it's my favorite but I feel like technically it's the closest I've ever come to achieving what I had in my mind when planning they don't always turn out exactly like you hoped that they would you write that you Take note of the fragments of time in nature that feel like magic in hopes that you can recreate those feelings in your artwork. Tell us about some of those magical fragments of time. So my husband and I spent a lot of time in creeks and local rivers and waterways. Um, He's kind of an artifact hunter, so we spent a lot of time looking for arrowheads and agates, different rocks. And he is more, he'll he'll stay in one area focused on rock beds, and I kind of venture off. Um, And a lot of those moments feel like magic to me because you, you just have time. It's quiet. No one's talking to one another. You can hear nature and you can take note of little things you know something as simple as finding a turkey feather on on a sandbar and being able to twist it in the sun and have all of the the gold flecks on it catch the light for a moment um all of that seems very magical to me i know as as children we see things and we think that everything everything is magical all of those little things and i think as an adult it's easy to let life take your focus away from small moments in your life, you know, that are very special, but very minute that unless you're looking, you won't, you won't see them. There are only a few works in the gallery on your website. And I'm always curious how an artist's work changes over time. So I can't see any of the early works. How would you describe the arc of your artistic journey over the last decade? 
I think, um, again, moving back to Missouri, I feel like really strengthened my artwork uh, when I was on the road because I wasn't as close to nature. I mean, we would do a lot of hiking and stuff, but I wasn't living in it per se. So my, my, my work on the road used a different color palette. So I would use primarily cerulean blues and uh, alizarin crimson. Those are my, my two favorite colors. So oftentimes those were featured. And I geared more towards fantasy. Like I would imagine natural elements, whereas when I moved back to Missouri, things are based more strongly into to reference to native flowers, stuff that I can see and take reference photos of. So it's more rooted in realism here. A couple of years ago, I read an article in New Scientist magazine called Silence of the Plants about how human activities are disrupting the delicate communication, not only between plants themselves, but also between plants and insects by disrupting the complex, volatile chemicals that our pollinators and our plants use to communicate bounty and communicate threat to each other. And the main culprits behind this are ozone and nitrogen oxide. So think diesel exhaust. So every time mm-hmm. I hear or smell a lawn care company throwing out diesel fumes or a gas-powered leaf blower at this time of year, it feels so destructive. But this is the kind of story that I feel art is so well placed to tell. And I'm wondering if you've ever thought about working with environmental scientists to tell stories about our effect on nature. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually a dream of mine. I've I've reached out to the Missouri Department of Conservation before um, trying to do work with them. And on our, we only purchased 12 acres here, but um, I've been working pretty diligently since we've we've owned it to, we don't mow. It was uh, livestock, a pasture when we purchased it, and we've been planting native plants to reestablish that. And just the amount of things that I've seen pop up since we've been here, including insects, being able to witness that has been pretty magical <laughs> right? to kind of commune with nature in that way and know that you're, you're helping to heal it. So yeah, I, I, that's absolutely a dream of mine would be to help get that message out there in any way that I can. Yeah, there's so many, so many great stories. Art has such a wonderful capacity to tell a story that when you see it in art, yeah. it feels, feels quite different. What are you currently working on? I am currently working on a piece that features a woman in a dress standing in a waterway but you can see oil on top of the water. So I'm sure that you've seen, you know, oil in parking lots or something where they have that film, but multicolored. It's actually very pretty, but she's standing holding a heron and the oil seeping in front of her. And she has the heron in her arms and the river behind her is actually on fire. It's a little more direct of an environmental message right. <laughs> than some of my other work. <laughs> No magic realism there, just realism. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the oil looks a little magical, a little uh, fantasy-like, but hopefully it'll, it will still make people, or that, that message resonate with people, the importance of our waterways. That's one thing that angers me locally. If you're walking near an agricultural field, you can often see the runoff from fertilizers and pesticides resting on top of the water and creating a film. So it's really close to home. Well, the artwork of Bree Dewey can be found on her website at breedewey.net. And that's spelled B-R-I-E-D-U-E-Y. Bree, I hope we get to see your work in person again in Columbia before too long. I know you were at Sega Browder's Gallery back in 2019. And thank you so much for talking about your work this evening. Yes, thanks for having me. It was great. Poetry is an art form I always feel like I have failed. 
And maybe that is in part because it's always felt stiff and formal and rule-bound, too much iamic pentameter and having to think hard. But the world of performance poetry is a world apart. And I suspect that in the same way contemporary classical music composers have to overcome people's aversion to the dusty old white men of classical music, performance poets are also in the business of changing minds about their art form. And my next guest, poet T.L. Sanders, is definitely in the business of opening minds. He is an educator, a motivator, a bodybuilder, a French speaker, a bass player, a martial artist, cage fighter, a filmmaker, and a language artist. His solo show and published work called New, the poetic screenplay, The Newborn, won the Producers Pick Award during the 2019 Kansas City Fringe Festival and is now an art house film called The Newborn, which premiered in August at this year's Kansas City Fringe Festival. And as one critic commented, the work is written in fire and delivered with thunder. Poet T.L. Sanders, what a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here with you. You do so many things. You write, you perform, you teach, you empower. Where are you the most fulfilled? Living. <laughs> and I, I, it, it's a simple answer, but I think that's the palette from which I get my ideas in living. As I get ideas from different artists, my students, music, even your introduction inspired me. I'm like, oh, I need to write some of this stuff down. <laughs> I'll send it to you. So sincerely, it's in. <laughs> thank you. It's in living. So your legal name is Poet, that you describe yourself as a language artist rather than as a poet. Tell me how you define the difference between a poet and a language artist. Well, I think they're definitely synonymous. Um, for me, I tell my students, even with punctuation, if I look at your paragraph, then I should see semicolons and M dashes. I should see periods and exclamation points because there is art just in the punctuation. I think that my appreciation for language, though not different than any other writer, is deeply personal. And there's growth. Um, for example, for a long time, I did not appreciate profanity. In college, I was an actor, and I shied away from roles where I had to use profanity. Even though now I do not use profanity in my personal life, I see why it has a place in language. So I think for me as a language artist, just like a visual artist or performing artist, I grow as I learn more and I use language more often, I grow every single day. I'm guessing that your birth name was not poet. So tell me about when you became poet and how changing your legal name altered maybe how you interacted with the world and, and how it interacted with you. Indeed. So March, my legal name became poet. Um, I wasn't, of course, always a poet. However, my mom and I had the conversation of my changing my name to Poet, oh, seven years ago. Uh, we were in the car and I was reading poetry to her. And I said, Mom, you know, I want to change my name. And she agreed. So I have my mother's blessing to be Poet. Of course, I'm an English teacher. My students were my real first audience. I remember... Um, 
I wrote a poem for a class in particular because there was a struggle with our our growing, let's say. And uh, in the room was the instructional coach. So as I shared the poem, the students were engaged. After the lesson, the instructional coach pulled me to the side and that's all we talked about was the poetry. Well, I began to share more and more with students as they were my audience and inspiration. And uh, in Kansas City, there was a art gallery called Paper Birch Landing. Well, they were offering poetry during some of the nights when they had paint parties or, or whatnot. And so I went to the director and I presented a poem. And then that was really the start of me performing outside of the classroom. And from there, I became actually a poet in residence. And through the Paper Birch Poet in Residency, I published the book Newborn, which, as you read, was a solo show and now is an art house film. But it it started simply from writing for students. And then the audience just expanded from there. As a child or growing up, did you write poetry? Did you read poetry? Or is poetry something that you came to in later life? Well, I journaled, but my confidence was so low. And it seemed that a poet truly understood, like you mentioned, form. Um, Of course, I could write a limerick, but could (laughs) I write a sonnet, right? And I remember in college when I first took the leap, I was working at a uh, fitness center and there was an English teacher who would come in often. And I wrote a poem and I shared it with him. I was 19, maybe. Well, he basically told me not to quit my day job. Now, mind you, my day job was a work-study program, so, I mean, I had to quit that job eventually. (laughs) I couldn't keep that one forever, right? So um, I ended up quitting that job as I graduated from college and such, but I did not quit poetry. I took a break, and then after college, I became a teacher, and hence my audience of students. But no, I definitely have not always been seen as a poet, from the outside or from within. However, as I changed my name and as the conversations with my mom and kind of an aside, my mom had cancer. So as I watched her change and as she mentored me through her struggle and journey and she modeled the beauty of of living on earth with the pain that comes with it and then still seeing joy juxtaposed with the struggle and chemo and eventual death, that beauty, I would say, transformed me in in a way that I don't have words. So when I think of myself now as poet, I remember myself then as Terrence, which is my mama gave me that name. I think of myself then as poet, and I look at the trajectory uh, from the impact that not only life, but in particular, my mother had on me. You write that literacy is respiration, read to inhale, write to exhale, which is such a lovely way to think about the world of words. But it seems to me in our contemporary social media slanted society that we spend way too much time exhaling without thinking and not enough time pausing as we inhale. And our airspace is so full of meaningless words that wound and deny and and kill, ultimately. Talk to me about how you see poetry combating that. Does it slow us all down? I think if we're willing to simply pause and take a breath, um, then 
it has a profound impact on us. So in some ways, poetry does slow us down, but we have to stop and smell the roses, if you will. Mm. Thinking of poetry itself, I, I'm not one that sees poetry only in a poem. And some of the collaborative work that I do with dancers and visual artists, there is poetry in the movement. There's poetry in the painting. And so um, because of that, those who don't necessarily connect with the poem, then connecting with the art, translating it in a poetic way, I think that also is literacy. Once we appreciate what life offers, then we can appreciate what we bring to the table as writers. I truly believe that we are all writers in some way or another. Well, talking about living and breathing, you performed a work at the Kansas City's Kaufman Center for their Artful Poetry Contest back in August. And I would love to have you read part of that work called I Am Human. Yes. All right. So it goes like this. To my dear neighbor, do you notice that when we are on our neighborhood trail, our neighborhood badge badgers me with questions, agitating the adage, they don't belong here. Agitated, I dodge the volunteer brigadier who would not hear my I belong song saying like the Broadway rent I paid to walk along the walkway under six feet away from my freshly paved blacktop driveway. Neighbor, do you notice how the badgeless beard, Benjamin Benny Coffin number three, barricades me, your neighbor, an affront in front of my own garage? Neighbor, tell them you noticed the berating barrage of expletives. Tell them how I exited this bloody mess triggered a loud love for the hate his soul was holding, exploded my skull. Knees buckled, he's belting, bare-knuckled, bullets through my brain, though my body barely breathes. And that's all you get. <laughs> and you can read the rest of that on Poet's website, poettlsanders.com. The work was originally called Why Are You On My Trail? What made you change the title to I Am Human? Well, if we just go to the essence of the work, that is the character I try to portray. Simply a human um, experiencing humanity. At first it was, why are you on my trail? And I felt also that the title was too simple because it gave too much quote unquote plot away. And I wanted people to really focus in on the humanity within the work. It's so powerful. And I, and I love watching the video on your website of you reciting it. Before we close, we talked a little bit in the intro about the film that you had that came out this year called The Newborn. Would you just talk briefly about that and also tell us how do we see it? Absolutely. Well, first of all, The Newborn is from my screenplay, New. And it's an art house film where I had the privilege of working with a cinematographer named Denny Day. The work is from a personal place. So my father died by heroin overdose. 
And the main character learns that his father dies by heroin overdose. In the film itself, it highlights the father. And we see some semblance of the son. However, the father's journey from from having a parole board hearing to trying to become a better man is seen throughout the work. Poetry sits at the forefront from the beginning to the end. How do you see it? It is going to be in the Orlando Fringe Festival. Fantastic. Uh, in January. My website, poettlsanders.com, will provide updates. And that is a great place to view the film. But if we're not going to be in Orlando, at what point will it be available online for people? Orlando Fringe is online. Perfect. So you'll be able to stream the film. And that is probably the best way. I'm trying to work out some other ways to get the film accessible. But uh, I am still learning about that process. Festivals like to keep things for themselves for a while. <laughs> That's very true. To find out more and follow Poet T.L. Sanders, go to his website, poettlsanders.com, or check out the YouTube channel by typing Be The Phenom, all one word, B-E-T-H-E-P-H-E-N-O-M, Be The Phenom, into the search. Poet, thanks for all the work you do to empower and inspire and for taking time to chat today. Absolutely. Thank you. It takes space to make art, not just a physical studio space, but mental breathing space, space to ponder and experiment, to let ideas mature and slowly percolate on the back burner of your brain. So for people who have big, busy, mentally consuming careers, the space for art making can be in short supply until they retire. For 20 years, Priscilla Block was the executive director of St. Louis Artworks, a non-profit that provides art education and job skill training to young people through paid apprenticeships and commissioned art projects. Over two decades, Priscilla grew the organization from offering summer-only jobs to a year-round program of diverse options for underserved young people with some incredibly impressive stats. 3,600 paid apprenticeships working with 55 high schools covering 40 zip codes and over $2.2 million paid to apprentices. But last year, Priscilla decided to retire and return to her first love, making art. Welcome to the show, Priscilla. Well, thank you very much. I love how you write in your bio on the Missouri Arts Council website that you have a room of your own again. And just those few words convey this idea of mental exhalation, of the contentment of being alone with light and air to breathe creatively. You have an interesting studio space. So tell us about it and how it feels to be in that room of your own again. Well, it feels fantastic is one thing I can say. <laughs> I used to have several other studio spaces, but this is the first time I've got one where I don't have another job. I don't have young children. I just have this place for me to make art. And it's got beautiful northern light that comes in and it's large enough that I can have a press room and a painting room and a gallery and a place to cook and relax and stay if I need to overnight. 
So these days you work predominantly as a painter and printmaker, but your art career began in the field of ceramics, working as an apprentice to a professional ceramicist. And after working in ceramics yourself for a while, you decided to go back to school and get a bachelor's degree in photography, painting and graphic design, and then a master's in printmaking. Why did you fall out of love with ceramics? I think ceramics was uh, something that I fell in love with in high school. And I loved the processes that you do in ceramics. I was very process-oriented. And for my graduation present from high school, I bought a or was given money to buy a kit to make a kick wheel. And that kick wheel followed me around until I finally sold it about 25 years ago. I think really things started when I was very young. I used to collect clay out of the creek <laughs> and make stuff out of it and bake it in the oven. So then when you went back to college, you decided not to continue with ceramics and you studied printmaking. What was it that you loved about that? What happened to me was I went to college very late in life. I was in my late 30s and I was tired of being isolated in my studio and wanted to be able to earn a little money besides doing art fairs. So what I ended up doing was starting at the community college and working through that to SIUE and to Washington University. And my first two years in college, I fell in love with every media I was using. I'd never had <laughs> an opportunity to study just art. And um, it was intoxicating. And I ended up in printmaking because it was also a process-based way of working, which I enjoyed a lot. One of the things I'm enjoying now with painting is that it doesn't have as much process involved. So um, it's more immediate. Of course, saying printmaking is like saying painting. I mean, it's a pretty broad definition. What areas of printmaking did you mostly work in? I mostly worked with collagraphs and watercolor monoprinting. Um, I also did lino cut and woodcut, but usually everything revolved around a collagraph plate to begin with. And a collagraph is the type of plate that you build up and you excise into. So you've got surface textures and you also have dry point etching lines within it. I think one of the hardest journeys for an artist is the transition from making art as a hobby to finding people who will pay you for your art. Not only the challenge of finding buyers, but, but also making money from something that most artists don't feel comfortable putting a price on because it's like putting a price on yourself and they feel really awkward doing that. How did you navigate that journey? Well, I think it started with being able to do that in ceramics, and that was uh, uh, done because I had many friends that were also ceramic artists, and I kind of learned from them uh, how to set a price, and I've never been shy about selling my work or setting a price for it. I'm always amazed when I ran an art gallery how often people would come in and just think they could negotiate with me. And, and I thought, you know, no one takes into account the amount of time and practice that has gone into a piece of art that you see on the wall, that it isn't just the cost of the paint that are on that piece of art. It's all the time that's gone in before. Did you run into that at all? 
I do run into that more to the point, though, I run into people saying, how long does it take to do a piece of work? Mm. And that has no defined answer. I work on many different pieces at a time, and some come quickly and some take months or years. So when I first came to the studio I'm in now, having retired, I had tons and tons of stuff that had been stored away. And I brought it out. And at the time, my press wasn't working. So I dove right into, well, what can I work on? And I had lots of canvases that I had started on that really weren't finished works from my time at SIUE. And I just started painting on those. So if you say, how long did it take to do that? I then several people did. I said, oh, about 23 years. Well, you know, looking through the gallery on your website, your work is incredibly diverse. And I'm not sure that I could walk into an art show and point to a work and say, oh, there's a Priscilla Block original. Is that diversity something you strive for? And how do you describe your work? I think that diversity describes me and my work. I am like somebody that has had to exist on cold cereal and sandwiches for 25 years and am now suddenly having a fully stocked refrigerator in farmer's market available to me daily. (laughs) And I often use food and cooking as a metaphor for my making art. I've been interviewed for many, many uh, newspaper stories in my ceramic art days, and I would say, my goal is to be able to make art the way I cook, to be able to just drop a little of this in and, and turn a little of that out. And I think, you know, that's, that's kind of where I am now again, and I'm finding myself again. I don't know where I'll end up, but it's only been about 10 months that I've re-begun making my own. Now, I did make art a little bit when I was executive director, but my last show was like in 2012 or something, and it was in one of in my old Beaumont studio. And from then on, the only art making I really did was pastels that I would do at home just to keep myself sane from having a desert of no art making in my life. Talking of staying sane, I mean, the arts in general have been an incredible therapy and escape for so many people over the past 18 months. How has this past time of trauma manifested in your creative output? How do you see it in your work? Oh, it is definitely my therapy. Hmm. Going from a job that I was very, very busy and had a lot of people that I was around and connected to and working with every day to being locked down from a pandemic and coming out of that lockdown in retirement. If I didn't have my art making, I, I, I don't know what I would have done. I probably would have gone and found another job. But I knew that's what I wanted to do. It had been my dream throughout my life to continue pursuing basically where I left off after I got my MFA and seeing where I could get with it. And the beauty of doing it now is I'm not as dependent on making the sales. I would like to, 
they would help me have an extra trip or buy more supplies. But I'm not hand to mouth about making those sales. So I have a little more freedom to experiment with different styles, different techniques. And that's what I do. And in terms of the pandemic itself, I really felt um, it was the elephant in the room that I had never addressed. I had addressed my own mental health issues in very veiled symbols in some of my work, but I wanted to address what was going on globally. And I did a piece called Requiem, and it was very difficult. It was not hard to get started, but three quarters of the way through, I found it was impacting me and my mood and my mental health. And as a therapy group I'm part of said, you're still in the trauma of it. And I realized I was. And I saw someone that I swim with and she said, I just want to see bright, happy work right now. And I said, that's what I want to make right now. So I put uh, Requiem aside for three months and I did a really couple of bright pieces. One is called Stool Pigeon. And then came the resurgence of this pandemic again. And that gave me sort of the mental space to go back in and finish Requiem. I also have done a piece, several pieces based on New York that has many reasons behind it. One, of course, is that's where my children live, two of them, but also because it kind of was, to me, where it all really hit me from was New York. That's where it hit like a sledgehammer. And uh, so I decided to do a series of work with the New York skyline, different parts of New York in the images. And so I have about three or four of those. But going back to where we are again with the pandemic, I'm finishing a piece right now that has as the center of its subject the monument to Senator Paul Simon from Illinois, and it's in his cemetery. And it's a very peaceful, serene setting. And sometimes I work on this and I go, why am I doing this? No one's going to buy a cemetery piece. But then I go, because I'm drawn to it. It's such a magnificent monument and the peacefulness around it, the field that it's in the gray skies that are around it. It just somehow speaks to what we're all still involved in. We're still going through this. Hmm. Do you have any in-person or online shows coming up? Well, I do, actually. I have a open studio sale on October 23rd and 24th from 1 to 4 here at the City Museum. Perfect. Well, you can see the work of Priscilla Block on her website at beaumontstudios.space and Beaumont is spelled B-E-A-U-M-O-N-T studios.space. Priscilla, thank you so much for being such a, a force for change through art for the past 20 years and all you've done for young people in St. Louis. And thanks for chatting with us today. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> And that is it 
for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests today, Andy Thomas, poet T.L. Sanders, Bree Dewey and Priscilla Block. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more Peaks Behind the Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!